differentiators, neutralizers, and minimum market requirements, which I call table stakes. And so the idea is that basically every feature you build should fall into one of these categories. That's Benjamin Humphrey, a co-founder of Dovetail, and this is Wild Hearts. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. We're often asked at Blackbird, what do you look for in SaaS companies when deciding whether to invest? With the hindsight of three funds and insights from working alongside world-class SaaS companies, including Canva, Safety Culture, and Coltramp, it's become clear to us what the common themes are. Each of those companies had product-obsessed founders, were ambitious in tackling global markets from the outset, and focused on customer love, building communities of customers who spread the word about their products. My guest today is Benjamin Humphrey, a co-founder of Dovetail. Dovetail is a SaaS company helping researchers efficiently analyze the data they've collected and turn raw data into evidence-backed insights that they can share with their entire organization. It's the user research platform for teams. Ben is product obsessed. He's attacking global markets from the very beginning and he's building products that designers, product managers, and engineers just can't help but tell their colleagues about. Today's episode, Benjamin covers the Maslow hierarchy of needs for product, what features you should build for your product and why, and his lessons from his time working for Atlassian. We'll also hear from Nick Crocker, general partner of Blackbird Ventures, on whether or not it makes sense to bootstrap your business, examples of Dovetail's passion for product, and how the team is building a bottom-up sales model. If you're an early-stage SaaS founder, we've recently written a blog with further insights into what Blackbird looks for in SaaS companies when making investment decisions. If Dovetail sounds like the kind of company you'd like to work for, check out their jobs board or email wildhearts at blackbird.vc. They've got a few roles like an account manager, like a copywriter uh, that they're not actually advertising right now. So please feel free to reach out. Without further ado, here is Benjamin, the co-founder of Dovetail. Thank you so much for coming on the potty. Uh, I wanted to start off with Glassian and your time there. Can you share some of the, the lessons while you were there? Totally. Yeah. Thanks, Mason. Nice to be here. Um, lessons from Atlassian. I think one of the big things for me being a visual designer coming from New Zealand, working only in small companies with the largest company I worked at at that time was um, Arvos with about 25 people, was the sort of sophistication that is required to run a few hundred person business. So Atlassian for me, it was really paranoid because I was like, this is going to be a huge company. At the time when I joined, I was like the 16th or 17th person to join the design team. And uh, there were probably 300, maybe 400 people in Sydney. And then worldwide, maybe just over a thousand. For me, that was enormous. Like I was just like, holy shit, this is a huge company. And I remember asking uh, Jürgen in my interviews, uh, who's the current, I think his title now is chief customer officer or something like chief experience officer. And uh, at the time I interviewed with him and he, and I was like really concerned that I have to wear a suit or I'd have to be, I have to show up at nine o'clock on the dot. I did not, no. He <laughs> clarified that I did it. And Atlassian's recruitment marketing is, is, is better now. I think they make that quite clear. So from Atlassian, it was like sophistication. For instance, I had never worked with other designers before. And so I'd always been a kind of only designer at the web design company because there was only four of us. So we hadn't really had these things like design sparring and design critique. I hadn't really had formal managers I'd never done, we'd never done like agile, Git, using Jira, all this stuff was was completely new. 
And so I kind of learned, like I saw firsthand, I guess, like what it takes to kind of run a business, you know, reasonably efficiently, like back in 2013, last year was pretty efficient and specifically just kind of product led business. But to me, that was normal. Like I hadn't worked with salespeople before. And so it was pretty standard to have this kind of product led company. And I didn't really know at the time that that was, that Elasium were kind of this incredible product led growth story that, you know, in a few years, everyone would would hold up as this kind of example of of PLG. One of the other things I learned was kind of on on PLG was sort of like the importance of expansion. And, and, you know, Mike and Scott always talk about this this flywheel and how they have this kind of, you know, expansion revenue coming through all these different opportunities. So they, they, you know, cross-sell is a big thing for Atlassian. So you buy Jira and then they cross-sell you to Confluence, for example. But Marketplace, the ecosystem is a huge expansion driver they obviously sell you enterprise and you can upgrade with number of seats and then the expert program which is like you know reselling kind of thing which is a, a incredible sort of thing that not many people know about that Atlassian does and they've kind of built this incredible like go to market around product like growth and a lot of people focus on some aspects of it like free trials and stuff but there's actually all this other stuff that kind of happens that enables that at Atlassian. So I only really started learning about this stuff later in my time there when I was involved in some more kind of like strategic and, and design vision projects. When do you think it makes sense to bootstrap and what was it like for you raising money? Yeah, so we started out with no intention to raise money. We started Dovetail, Brad and I, back in sort of 2017, we left Atlassian and we bootstrapped for about two years before we raised money. For us, we originally wanted to build like this happy, healthy, crunchy company like Basecamp or Buffer, where we would be, you know, 50 people max and kind of fully owned by us and, and, the, and the employees and become profitable and kind of sustainable long term and all this sort of stuff. So we, we also like I also knew the importance of, I guess, showing traction versus just selling an idea like it's. The way that I think about fundraising is that you want to, and and pitching the company in general, like to new employees and stuff like this too, is it's a story. Like you're ultimately storytelling about the the company, the product, the mission, the market, and why why it's all great. But you can't just tell the story without evidence. And I think the evidence actually helps significantly in in giving you the ability to have a round on, on your terms. So I guess I wanted to build the evidence for the story that I wanted to tell. And I also wasn't 100% certain what story I wanted to tell. So I wanted to sort of get all the ducks in a row, I think, before you raise. Because like, if you kind of raise straight out of the gate, you're pretty hypothetical in terms of like the idea you want to do, the product you want to build. Like It's a lot of, a lot of guesswork, a lot of assumptions. And then investors will, will basically use that as, as, as power, as leverage to, to lower the valuation and you'll end up doing a 20% seed round, 20% dilution. So the more kind of evidence you have that supports your story, the more you can kind of say, well, look at all this traction, look at all this uh, stuff we're doing, we deserve a higher evaluation, which is really driven by dilution. Like for us, when we raised, we were profitable. And so that's a great position to be in as a startup. The, the best startups uh, are the ones that don't need the money, right? Because mm-hmm. um, they're in such a position of power. And so that was great for us. And we could then tell the story about the kind of business we wanted to build and find the right investor who would sort of support us in that journey, right? Who kind of got it. Um, not one of these sort of like 
uh, churn and burn sort of investors who want us to spend all the money as quickly as possible and, and this sort of thing. Uh, that's not the kind of company we wanted to build and certainly not the one we, we want to build at all. So yeah, having all that evidence and having that story to kind of tell, you, you have to kind of have it across the whole gamut, like the culture, the product, the market, the growth story, the month-on-month revenue growth, all the numbers, the churn, like the whole thing. And you don't lead with that. You lead with the, the story of where you are, where you are, where you came from, where you are, where you want to go. And then all of this is just sort of plugged in as evidence to support it. And then, yeah, the reason that we, we wanted to do that is just to, it's quite simple. Like we wanted to optimize for dilution. We didn't want to uh, give away a lot of equity. We wanted to retain control of the business. And so when you have a profitable early stage company that has traction, has a product that has customers and a small team and you've got their bootstrapped, it's a lot easier to then say, actually, no, we don't want to do a board seat. Actually, we want to do a low dilution round. So I always encourage people to optimize not for like the amount of dollars raised or the valuation, but like the amount of dilution. If you want to retain control of a company, because you got to remember that every round you're going to be giving percentages away. And so... And what was the inflection point for you to go from bootstrapping is the way to go to actually, you know what, we think raising money on our terms makes sense. Yeah, this was a tricky one. Like this is probably the hardest decision that I have made, that Brad and I have made to date. We, we noodled on it for a long time. So for us, there were a few things happening. We initially thought that we would be able to kind of build this business where we got to like $100,000 in revenue and we could pay ourselves each like 50 grand and that would be sufficient for us to continue living our lifestyles. And then when we got to 100 grand, we realized that there was actually like a lot of work to do and we needed another engineer. So instead of paying ourselves a salary, we just paid this engineer. And then we became three people and we had a team. And the other thing that happened is after 18 months of just us working in our kitchens, we you know, got kind of over it. Like it was nice at the beginning to get out of Atlassian and kind of the bureaucracy and the size of that company. But after 18 months, we wanted to, a team again. We wanted to hang out with people on Friday drinks. Like Friday drinks was just Brad and I, you know, at Barangaroo. And that was, that was fun for a bit. But then after 18 months, it was just like, oh, you again. You know? <laughs> so we wanted to grow a team and have a culture and kind of have a company. And that was only going to happen as fast as our revenue was growing. And that was even that was still paying like below market salaries and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So most of our network being Atlassian, it was very difficult for us to to hire people in Sydney uh, because of the the salary gap and the equity gap and things like this. So we so that was one one thing like was we wanted to hire sort of faster than revenue was growing, and it was partly because of a sort of selfish interest in growing a company and doing that sort of thing and getting sick of being a two person bootstrap company after eighteen months. And the other reason was the customer growth and like that was driving it. Like, for example, we used to just share like on call. So like if there was a problem at one o'clock in the morning, you know, I would wake up if I was on call and, and, uh, and Brad would wake up if he was on call and the alarm would go off. And that was all well and good for a while, but then we got kind of sick of it. And especially because Brad was always escalation, like, cause there's only two of us. So like, and he was the only real engineer. So he was kind of on call all the time. And so we, you know, bigger engineering team, you can spread that sort of load. We were dealing with support. We didn't have anybody doing marketing and thinking about that full time. And we also felt like we were almost doing like a disservice to the customers because they were putting a lot of belief in us, I think. Like 
they uh, were storing a lot of data with us. They were giving us a bit of money and kind of backing our horse and we didn't want to uh, let them down. So I think that the decision to raise was basically, you know, wanted to grow the team faster, be an attractive place to work, de-risk the business personally as well. At that point still, Brad and I were just, you know, we could have crashed and burned pretty quickly if something bad had happened. Uh, so de-risk the business personally by bringing on extra capital and, and then also kind of de-risk the customer story. So yeah, it was, a, it was a good decision. Like now thinking about what's happened this year with COVID and all this sort of stuff, like it's, it's great to have that kind of flexibility. Like we, you know, we, we haven't spent very much of our money, but intentionally. And so it's just, it's nice. Like we don't, I would, I would be very worried, I think, if, if we were still bootstrapped now and we were living like month to month where we could only, you know, even without Friday drinks. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're moving into like a new office and stuff soon and that's going to have a big impact on the culture and, and kind of like we've, you know, got our own, it's our own space and we're fitting it out. All this sort of stuff like we would have had eventually been able to do, but it just would have been kind of doing it on hard mode, I guess. And we, we wanted to kind of experience the next stage of the business. Like there's this thing where like founders are always constantly getting more ambitious because you hit your goals and you kind of create new goals. So like we hit our $100,000 goal and we didn't really think what happened after that. We were just like, oh, okay, we passed 100K ARR. Now what? And then you keep doing that, right? Past a million, now what? And then, so you have to kind of constantly be increasing your level of ambition. And for us, that was um, one of the reasons why we raised is to sort of experience that. On that, what are you trying to do? What's the mission? Yeah, so the, so the simple um, answer to this is that we help organizations understand their customers. So tactically right now, what, what that makes that means for us is we kind of help people make sense of unstructured data and we help them share it and we help them store it and we help them find it later. So the philosophy is that there are plenty of ways to kind of collect customer data. So the world has like heaps of, of survey software, like you've got, you know, Typeform, Wufu, Qualtrics, Google Forms, like there's all these ways that you can run a research survey. There's heaps of MPS platforms like Delighted, Ask Nicely, Promoter, usability testing tools like usertesting.com and Lookback, support tools, Zendesk, ServiceNow, video conferencing, you've got Zoom, Google Meet, Teams, like there's just all these ways that you can talk to customers and you can across like you know, like customer research or user research, design, product management, support, sales, market research, customer success. Like there's all these parts of the business that, that talk to customers. And most of the time it's in this fairly unstructured way. Like your product manager will do a video call with a customer for half an hour and it'll be a sort of semi-structured interview. Uh, but the responses that the customer is going to be giving is like freeform like this, right? So how do you make sense of all of this data that you're collecting as an organization, all of this unstructured qualitative data, like this conversation. And and then how do you, like it's one thing to do that when you're a small company and you've only got a few calls going on, but how do you do that when you're a growing organization? You have you know hundreds of researchers and designers and product managers, you have a whole market research team, you have customer success and support, you have hundreds and hundreds of tickets coming in, thousands of NPS responses. It's a tough kind of gig, like making sense of all of this. And then you wanna try and standardize it and scale it as well. So. My analogy is that we're kind of building the VS Code and the GitHub, but for people who do research. 
So like researchers, product managers, and designers. Uh, so analysis is kind of a single player experience. Like you conduct an interview and then you do the analysis on a bunch of interviews. And that's kind of usually an individual person's job. At least if you're a researcher, it's an individual person's job. And maybe you have kind of collaboration sessions and synthesis sessions with stakeholders to kind of work together on things and analyze stuff together with post-it notes. But a lot of the time that's just to kind of get stakeholder involvement and take them on the journey. It's not actually... You're not actually doing a lot of value there. The real hardcore analysis is an individual person's thing. But but what happens is that researchers and, and PMs and stuff, they don't want their hard work, like all these calls they've done and all these insights they've discovered to become shelfware. It's like their number one fear. So they want to share the stuff out. They want to collaborate with other people. They want other people in the organization to you know understand their insights and their findings and kind of have these aha moments as well. And so... You know, the more efficient you, efficiently you can do that, the more your organization as a whole can become kind of customer focused. And then the more customer focused you are, the uh, faster you'll, you'll be able to build, you know, valuable products and services. And that's a huge differentiator. And so that's why like every time a product manager starts at a new organization, they spend the first six months onboarding, just having one-on-one coffees with all the other product managers to just like get you know get all the context basically like what is this product for you know who's it solving uh problems for what's the unique differentiators the value proposition where where are the problems you know all this stuff that is actually you know has been known and is known as institutional knowledge in the business it's such a bottleneck it's yeah and i think that like you know, I think more and more like the user experience is becoming the key differentiator for businesses, like as everything is kind of a race to the bottom. So like technology enables, you know, like AI and automation, machine learning, like all this stuff. Everybody's kind of doing product lead growth. It's not rocket science to do a free trial and have kind of easy to try, easy to buy, good marketing, all this sort of stuff. And so the UX of the product and, and more than just how it looks and how the interactions work, but actually is it solving like real problems? That's the differentiator now, I think. And not pricing, not, and you know, engineering velocity, stuff like this, but like technology is kind of table stakes. Like you just go plug into Amazon or Google Cloud and you get all of your sort of differentiating technology. So that's not really where you can innovate, at least in SaaS. I think it's mostly the user experience. And then for all companies, you know, if, if, you, if you imagine like a, a future where you can just kind of plug in to the Neuralink, um, into Elon Musk's Neuralink and just like, you know, hook dovetail up to your brain as like a product manager and just kind of know everything that every, every PM, every researcher, every designer, and just have like all those conversations that, you, that the rest of the organization has had with their customers. If you could just have that level of context and everybody in the organization could have that level of context as quickly as possible. So when the, if you take it to the extreme, that's like you plug in for a minute like the matrix and then you kind of live through all of these experiences you'd be so much more effective in your role because you just you have the same level of context as you know the founders or the same level of context as these other pms who have been there for years whereas at the moment the strategy is basically like oh you know product manager who's been here for five or ten years you should jump in my workshop because you have all the context like you know it's so inefficient so i think eventually we want to be you know, the standard way that all product teams organize and scale their like customer understanding. And I call it customer understanding rather than research because I think it's, it's broader than that. Because yeah, it's not just, 
I don't think just researchers do research. I think a lot of people talk to customers and do research. Oh, for sure. If you're not understanding who your product's for, you're missing something. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's super important, obviously, for founders and, yeah. and early stage uh, startups trying to find their MVP and kind of validate their MVP. Yeah. Oftentimes at larger organizations, they want to make the transition from, I guess, old school legacy systems to, oh, it's time to understand how my customers are actually interacting with my product. And through that transition, they might hire a bunch of consultants. Often um, times human-centered design kind of hits that bucket. And then there's this massive cultural transition. In that cultural transition, I went through one where we had a human-centered designer come in. They ran this huge process. All of the unstructured data was essentially everywhere. We had interviews, we had prototypes and how people would react to certain things. And it was lost in just a Google Drive. And when they left, so did the IP. And then there was also this cultural transition that they couldn't completely jump over. What have you kind of seen from the challenges that Dovetail customers face? Has there been that same sort of arc in cultural transition? Or are the early customers that you've been dealing with a lot more susceptible to change? I would say there's definitely the, 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 the kind of transformation happening. Like my theory is that it's a bit like design. So design had this whole kind of wave where designers got the kind of quote seat at the table, yeah. you know, back. Seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think that they kind of got this buy-in from executives and, and CEOs of, of companies who are valuing similar to Atlassian, right? Like Atlassian went through this transition. Now they have this huge design team and, and really value it. And I think it's about, you know, showcasing the value and many, many people worked, worked, worked hard to kind of get that seat at the table and selling the value of design. And, and then also all of these commercial players came along. So like Envision, for instance, they've been selling design for like, you know, 10 years. They don't really sell the product. They're, they're selling design and then they're like pitching their product as, a, as the solution for when you need design, you know. And then Figma and Sketch and Framer and Abstract and all these other tools along with Adobe getting into the space a bit more heavily. It's just kind of wave in the industry. And I think that research is going through a similar thing in terms of our customers and the challenges they have, uh, a lot of our customers are pretty large. Like you can get by for quite a long time on sticky notes and spreadsheets and Google Drive and Dropbox and Notion, stuff like this. And they're all kind of like flexible, what I would call like white space tools. So they're use case agnostic. They can be molded and shaped and kind of bent to uh, whatever use case you, you need them to be bent to but at some point it's a bit of a needle in a haystack problem like you can only collaborate with so many people at a time using sticky notes and then once it's an unstructured format and so how do you then compare kind of project to project how do you go back and look at something two years ago same thing spreadsheets again like it's so flexible that each kind of researcher each designer each product manager has a different methodology a different way of working and so you have this challenge where you want to sort of standardize how research is conducted for the purpose of making it less of a needle in a haystack. Because if everything looks different, it's kind of hard to know what you're looking for, right? But if everything looks the same, like you know what an insight looks like, you can go find the insights. They're all in the same place, they all look the same. So the funny thing is I think that research is extremely fragmented in terms of methodologies and tools. You know, there are a hundred ways to do an interview and there are 100 different tools you can use to do the interview from in-person with a recorder on a table spitting out a WAV file to over Zoom call, which gives you the transcript in, a, in, in Zoom cloud. 
And so that makes it tricky. How do you kind of educate? Another challenge is that, you know, researchers are never going to have a kind of one-to-one ratio with design or product management. I just don't think that the, it's just not something that organizations are going to get to like this one-to-one ratio. So there's always going to be more research that needs to be done than there are people to do it. So that then means that researchers have to educate like non-researchers on how to do it kind of correctly. Mm -hmm. So then you need to kind of scale, like how do you educate PMs and designers and, and salespeople and stuff to sort of format their data in a reasonable way and kind of not ask leading questions and and sort of democratize research because a lot of people are kind of scared of you know quality and and every product manager has always kind of you know cherry picked the answers that they like to support their argument and stuff like that's just something that humans do so trying to like be somewhat objective as soon as that stuff starts happening as well like the kind of you know research gets a bad reputation and, and that's not what the the research team wants so it's 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 very much like a, a maturity thing research is very immature i believe as a discipline and uh, I think in 10, 15 years, it'll be somewhere like where des- like I think design is kind of getting a lot more mature now. And you have like players like Figma that are really starting to become a standard in the same way that like Git and Agile and, you know, TypeScript, for instance, and React are sort of standards in engineering now. It takes a long time to develop standards. And I think we're so early in research. So I want to break down what some of the best customer knowledge practices are yeah well talk to the right people a lot that's and there's a lot of yeah there's a lot in that so i think it's very easy to talk to the wrong people (laughs) and by that i mean you have to kind of be quite diligent around who you recruit for research and especially in the early stage as a founder like who you're talking to one of the mistakes i think a lot of people make when they start a business and try and build a SaaS product and they want to do product-led growth is that they'll go talk to like the exec team or something like that when really the end user is the person that you want to speak to. Atlassian made this mistake for a long time. They, they only spoke to admins and not the end users of Jira. And the funny thing about Jira is that the admins love it. Like, you know, it's, uh, it's a product that they can kind of configure and, and can standardize and control. And so that's something that the the IT team and the kind of administrators of Jira really like about it. So they were kind of promoters and then Atlassian puts on this conference every year called Summit and all the admins go to the conference, right? So then we go and talk to them. But then there's all these end users that, you know, never really had a voice. So Atlassian rolled out, you know, research and then NPS and stuff uh, a number of years ago, um, just after I joined. And it was kind of shocking actually, because it turned out that a lot of people didn't like Jira. But no one really knew that because they only talked to admins. So I think talking to the right people in, in the case of a product lead growth company, you, you know, the buyer may be like a C-suite or something, but the ultimately at the end of the day, the decision makers will be the users because they're the ones who like or dislike it and they'll advocate for it or they'll try and move to a competitor. And then talk to people a lot. Like it's not rocket science. And so we at, at Dovetail, we, we don't have any support people. We rotate through support. So each week... Uh, as a new person on support and when you start at Dovetail you get thrown on support in your first week which is trial by fire but it's so good because like immediately you can just tell like at the end of the week that new person has built up so much context and empathy 
so it's just amazing like we had a new engineer join three weeks ago daniel and his in his first week he was on support and he there was a bug reported and he like you know empathized with the customer and actually like fixed the bug and deployed it to production in his first week and he kind of saw that end to end and it's so good because it's just like you know and also like you normally don't get to to interface with customers as an engineer so so that's something we do but yeah, talk to people a lot. And then I think that once you start talking to people, you can start thinking about how more sophisticated you can get. Like maybe the first step is talking to them and then the second step is like recording it <laughs> and then kind of going back over it later, take, taking notes or something. And then once you start recording it, maybe you want to then have a bit of a structured interview guide or whatever and start to be a bit more sophisticated in how you talk to multiple people and then you recruit people and then all of a sudden you're kind of doing research and you didn't really know it. And it's one thing as well, like it's always going to be this thing where like if somebody tells you, oh, I had this conversation with a customer and they said this and this and this, the, whoever it is you're speaking to will be like, oh yeah, that's interesting. All right. And then like, whereas if, if they spoke to that customer, like if you did it firsthand, like firsthand experience is so much more valuable. They're going to be like inspired and feel really strongly about um, wanting to do something. This can be dangerous though, because then you kind of end up possibly like... I'm sure a lot of people have worked with like a PM who has had a one interview with one customer and then been like, we've got it. That's, that's the insight. Yeah. The end end of one. Yeah. So I think you have to be careful of that stuff as well and make sure that you don't get too uh, impassioned by a single conversation, but be a little bit more kind of, you know, thoughtful about how you, who you speak to and and how many people and, and when. I actually found seven people in my prior job when we were doing user interviews was a pretty good gauge yeah you start hearing the same things again after five to seven ten people yeah it's always a good sign if you start hearing the same things Uh, there's also such a thing as doing too many interviews doing too much research so i think it's a fine balance to strike because you want to be quick right like that's one of the another one of the challenges we hear from our end users from our customers is that they they're battling this perception that you know qualitative research is is slow and and ineffective and inefficient it's very tempting like humans they love certainty like just program to 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 uh, em- embrace certainty and and shy away from ambiguity like nobody likes ambiguity right especially in the workplace like you want to know what you're doing each day each week you want to know what the quarterly plan is going to be for the next quarter the vision for the company the mission like we talk a lot about certainty but life is actually pretty ambiguous and like you know uncertain and it's full of surprises. Like nobody would have suspected this year was going to be like this. Except Bill, Bill Gates, 2015. Except for Bill Gates, yeah. <laughs> Poor Bill, man. <laughs> He's just sitting there. <laughs> I told you guys. <laughs> That's a great documentary, actually, Inside inside Bill's Brain. Yeah, yeah no, it's an awesome doco. Shows you how, how much of an alien he is. Yeah, yeah, but not a bad kind of alien. No, 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 he no, doesn't no great alien. To, he doesn't want to chip us all. He up. comes in peace. Microchip us all. He did actually say the other day that he doesn't want to do that. He he refuted it. Uh, of course, that's exactly what he would say if he yeah. was. Going. <laughs> but yeah, I think that you you want to embrace ambiguity, and I think that uh, we were kind of trained, I guess, as designers at Atlassian in the early days to embrace ambiguity and this idea of like opening a door where you don't know what's on the other side and just jumping through it. And Certainly as a founder, you have to be super comfortable with ambiguity and kind of not really knowing what you're going to be doing day to day. But where I was going with all of this is that quantitative data has this kind of idea that it's 
this perception that it's it's certain you know somebody tells you 40 percent of people uh convert on the free trial you're like okay that's that's objectively true or maybe a better example is uh monthly i love monthly active users all right so like monthly active users is such a bullshit metric and the reason is because it varies so much on how you measure it so what people don't tell you is they'll say here's how many mail we have but then they never disclose what events behaviors they're actually measuring to get to that number right so like does a login count or do they actually have to do something in the product like you have to understand the context of of uh, how a, a number is arrived at to be able to treat it as a fact but a lot of people only present the final number with no context so i always like getting into the code and looking at the exact lines that an event is fired to understand under what circumstances it's fired because there's usually a bunch of if statements and things around it and so quantitative data especially like product analytics can be super misleading you can choose all sorts of vanity metrics and numbers that suit your agenda while ignoring everything else it has heaps of problems but people treat it like this amazing certain thing i think the other thing with quantitative data is like it's all well and good like it tells you what so if i go back to my first example which is like 40 percent of people convert from trial mm. great now what what do i do with that information i've got no idea like how do we get it higher why is it so low what type of people are converting you know there's always questions that i have along with like how is it measured is it even accurate in the first place and so i think that the qualitative stuff can tell you the why and the reasons behind it right you can actually learn what are the 60 percent missing out on that made them not convert what is it about the 40 percent that actually caused them to convert what are the things in the product that they saw or the attributes that they have as potential customers as leads that mm. cause them to convert like you need to you, the data won't tell you that the quantitative data won't tell you that you have to go talk to them i mean we've got a little issue with nps um for some of those exact reasons where you can <laughs> pretty much would that at any part of the product process and completely yeah you ask like depends where you ask it right like you ask somebody how likely would you be to recommend dovetail to a friend or colleague immediately after they publish an insight and and we give them a ten dollar credit or something like you know like it totally depends um we send them a a t-shirt and then ask them it depends where you ask them when you ask them and how you ask them we 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 recently shifted from in product so we had a a thing popping up pretty randomly at the bottom of the screen that said how likely would you be to recommend after and our mps was you know like 60 or something quite quite good and that was fine and so then we switched to email uh, for reasons and the MPS dropped like 10 points down to like 50. No, no kind of rhyme or reason. And my theory is that when you ask them in the context of the product, when they're actually using it, they're evaluating the question based on the product experience. And so at that time, you know, maybe they're enjoying the product and, and the product, our product is okay to use, right? But then when you send them an email, they're not in the product. They're doing whatever, something else. And so then they're evaluating you based on their understanding of your brand. Like when they think Dovetail, they think what? And then it's not just about the product and its interactions. It's about the company, the the brand and what it stands for, the value proposition. And I would say that our, our brand, and when you evaluate Dovetail as a brand, it's probably like a little less exciting than maybe the moment 
in the product, right? So it totally depends on the context of where you ask these questions. And sure. uh, that's why quantitative data is not a um, panacea. How do you build a great product? Yeah, this is one of the difficult questions. It's very hard. It's probably the most difficult thing. It's, it's, it's harder than marketing, it's harder than sales. I think building a great product is, is, is very difficult. For me, there's a couple of good articles that we uh, were talking about last week. So Tomas Tungus, who's an investor partner at Redpoint, he writes a lot on startups. And he's, he's very much in the quantitative data realm. But uh, he wrote this article called Why Your Startup Doesn't Invest Enough in Differentiators. And this other chap back in 2013 wrote this other article called How to Build Great Products, defmacro.org. I'm not actually sure what it is. Yeah. And but these articles both talk about essentially the same thing, which is that you need to bucket features into these three categories. Tomash calls it differentiators, neutralizers, and minimum market requirements, which I call table stakes. And so the idea is that basically every feature you build should fall into one of these categories. And so a, a differentiator is kind of like a something that you can't get anywhere else. Like by definition, it is differentiated. So it's it's really the thing that, that causes people to buy the product. It's the, it's the wow moment. It's, uh, it's for cheese that you want them to taste. And you want to show the uh, differentiator as soon as you can basically like especially if you're doing a free trial like that's the stuff you should be focusing on that's the unique value proposition and you want a couple of these you want maybe two or three of these although you don't often start out with that i i, I feel like a lot of startups they the first idea that mvp is usually a differentiated thing and then over time this is the case for us uh you build a lot of stuff around the differentiator and then after a couple of years, you hopefully know enough about the customers to know what the next differentiator will be. And you want to kind of keep blowing their mind every couple of years, uh, every year, ideally, with new differentiators. So that's differentiators. Neutralizers, which Tamash talks about. And neutralizers, we struggle with a wee bit. I think the other article calls them showstoppers. I think this is probably a little bit better. And that's essentially features that, you know, your, your competition has. So for us... We were recently compared to another product that has a Jira integration, and we don't. And they were evaluating both, and they chose the other product because of a Jira integration. So having a Jira integration is not why people buy Dovetail, but it's why they wouldn't buy it because we don't have it, right? So you, you need to have some of these, but you don't want to go too ham on that. And so then that kind of leads us into table stakes, or what Tomash calls minimum market requirements, and that's basically like things that people expect of your product that you know other tools have. So a good example is maybe like search. Like everybody expects a SaaS product to have search because they all do. And if you don't have search, it's a bit of a weird omission, but it's not the kind of thing that people will call out and say, you guys have search, well done. And it's the same with like, Maybe like user management, being able to invite other users, billing, being able to put your card in the product, pay for it. Commenting is a good one. Like everybody has inline comments and page level comments. And then like more and more things are becoming what I would call table stakes. So like a few years ago, nobody had uh, Kanban boards. Like it was only Trello. And then Jira bought Agile, which was called Greenhopper. And that came with kind of Kanban boards, uh, Asana released Kanban boards, Notion came along with Kanban boards, 
Airtable, Kanban boards. Everybody has Kanban boards, right? <laughs> and so it's a, it's a table stake. And like maybe a few years ago, it was pretty difficult to do a, a nice Kanban board experience, like drag and drop experience on the web. Now it's easy. So we all have, have these boards. Reactions is another good example. You know, Slack kind of had reactions or Facebook or whoever started it. And Twitter has it and Facebook has it and Slack has it. LinkedIn has it. Everyone has reactions. And they use these tools in their daily life and they're like, why doesn't Dovetail have reactions? Yeah. It's just some bullshit thing that they, they want, right? A minimum requirement, an expectation that they have, but nobody buys it because of reactions, mm-hmm. but nobody leaves because it doesn't have it, right? It's not like a, it's not a showstopper, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that you wanna kind of do as little of those as you can, um, the minimum amount to meet their expectation and no more. So the article talks about copy paste on iPhone. So the iPhone launched without copy paste text. And that you could argue was like an expectation. And sure, it probably pissed off some people who were expecting it and wanted to copy paste. But Apple correctly decided that it wasn't worth prioritizing and it didn't have a meaningful impact on the adoption of the iPhone because it wasn't a game changer feature. It wasn't a showstopper they didn't need to build it so they built it later yeah. but like in the mvp so i think thank you so did. yeah that's <laughs> that's one approach um the other thing that i had this idea about the other day was uh, you know maslow's hierarchy of needs and i was talking with brad my co-founder and everyone talks about kind of like product market fit and how important that is but a product is, is a, set, a set of features right like a set of functionality and an experience and so when you build a new feature, uh, so signal versus noise, like the 37 signals blog has, a, has a, uh, a really good article and it's called position, 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 I think it's called. And so your product and your kind of feature set is like your position in the market, like your kind of what you tell, your signal you give to the world about like what we stand for and kind of what we're trying to do, what we're going after. And you want to have the features kind of as the evidence, I guess, of your brand and position of the product. And so when you build a new feature, I think on the bottom, if you imagine the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and it's a pyramid, the bottom most thing is, is the value of the feature. Like, is it actually solving real problems for enough people, enough of your uh, audience? So I, you know, feature market fit, basically. Like, does the feature have uh, a market? And that's, you can't really compromise on that. If you compromise on that, then what are you doing? Like you're building something that is pointless. So then above that, on the next level of the pyramid, I, f- I feel like for me, it's a user experience. Like I think that that has to be the second most important thing after the, like if the feature is valuable, people can still use it, even if it's kind of shit to use. Mm-hmm. So then you, but it's kind of, you know, they don't like it. So then user experience is the second thing. Above that, and the context of this is when you want to prioritize features in your startup. So like above that, I would say like code quality. So like engineering excellence in terms of like how the feature is built, is it hacky or is it really classy uh, and, and dry and you know, kind of you know, awesome. And then on top, I would say is scope, the, the breadth of functionality. And so you want to basically compromise on things from top to bottom. So you want to, the first thing, if you're thinking about building a new feature, and you need to descope it because you don't have enough time, which you never do. You never want to compromise on like the user experience first or something like that. You compromise on the, the breadth of the feature, like the scope, then the quality of the engineering, because that's the stuff that's not really customer facing. 
then the user experience, which is customer facing, and then finally the value of the feature, which is the ultimate thing that matters. So just this new thing I had the other day, this idea I came up with. When you talk about breadth of the scope, what do you mean by that? Can you double click there? Yeah, so basically the idea is like, rather than do lots of things to 80% kind of done, just do less things to 100%. So if you're shipping, I don't know, like search as an example, right? The bare minimum for search is that you can type something in and hit enter, even not even not even that, that's like a keyboard shortcut. So the bare minimum is you type something in, you click a button and it returns you some results and it does that quickly. So that's kind of like the scope. And so you want that to be a great experience. So maybe you swap out the button, click for an enter and you have keyboard shortcuts and you can kind of search for things and it's really fast and you can tab through results or something like that and you can show previews and you can kind of have the experience of that basic functionality be really nice. Yeah. And I would I would do that rather than have a, have a full hardcore search experience which has filtering and sorting and you can subscribe to the search and download a CSV of the results and you can share a link to somebody and you can do all this other stuff and then have all of that stuff be kind of 80% done. And the irony is I don't feel like we have done a great job at that principle because there's this sort of competing school of thought which is the idea of like tent pegs and so if you're building a new product or a new feature you want to lay down the the sort of tent pegs uh first so you put you know this corner another corner then the other corner and the other corner and you've laid the foundation you kind of show other campers where you're going to be before your tent's finished so then they don't kind of encroach and they kind of can see the future and then you build it up right Otherwise, you just put down two pegs and build a single wall, but you actually, you haven't communicated that you want to be, you know, a few meters that way as well. So that approach would basically be do lots of features and kind of MVP them all. And we've, we've kind of done that in some, in some places of the product. What have you found the shortcomings to be? Well, the shortcomings is that you have a product that is, feels like a collection of MVPs, which is something that you need to consciously go back to and kind of rectify. Imagine the product are just really starting to build. Yeah, that's, that is a challenge. But the flip side is that by like, users don't know what they don't know. So like, they're never gonna give you feedback on uh, a differentiator. So if, if search is not missing, if search is missing, sorry, they will say you should build search because they're used to that, pro- they're used to that feature in other products. But if, a differentiator is missing they won't imagine it because they haven't by definition it's something they haven't really experienced before it's something they can't get anywhere else you sort of need to put down your tent peg for the differentiator and say like this is where we're going as a product and then they'll start to give you all this feedback on it so that's what we did earlier this year we in the last couple of years dovetail has done text analysis and then in february this year march this year we launched like video and audio analysis so we do the transcription and then you can upload the video and we, we transcribe it and then you can tag it and stuff and we slice the video up into what we call highlights uh, and make a highlight reel and stuff. No one really asked for that feature though. They just wanted incremental improvements on the text analysis part of the product. And we came along and was like, we're like, hey, because we noticed that a lot of people were just copying and pasting transcripts in and tagging the transcript. And we were like, well, why don't you just do all of that in Dovetail? We'll transcribe it for you. And then you actually don't 
the connection to the original recording is still maintained. So we built that and, and people were kind of like, wow, this is awesome. And then we did like an MVP of it where it's nice to use, but it's not feature complete. And then over the last four or five months, we've kind of listened to all the feature requests for that feature. So we put the tent peg down and then it was a new differentiator tent peg and learned what they wanted us to do to build the, the wall, the pole. How do you think about the cost associated with time in respect to how wide the scope is? I like, for example, to give you context, I remember reading an article way back when, and it was like the the breadth of the number of customers that you can hit with a particular product or, or feature, the depth of that feature divided by the the cost with respect to time. How do you think about the impact of time? I think like velocity is probably the single most important thing for a startup or any company, to be honest. Like you, you basically need to be as fast as you can be to respond to change in the market, to ship new features, to execute on the, on the ideas that you're getting through your customer research. So the more you can do in the least amount of time is, is definitely the winner. I re- remember this uh, analogy. It was an engineering article. It was about engineering, from an engineering manager about engineering velocity. And the thought exercise taking it to the extreme was like, imagine you had a, 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 a sort of proposal that like a, a client was was proposing uh, something to build like a website right would you choose the team that comes back and says they can do it in in a week for you know x amount of dollars or would you choose the team that can say they can do it in like uh they can build it in a minute but it's you know twice or three times more expensive but spend a week on it mm-hmm. so you you would you would choose the, the latter because they can spend and the article's a little foggy to me but basically the team that can build it in a minute can spend the rest of the week learning exactly what it is they need to build. So the solution is going to be that much better because you've spent all this extra time you had on uh, finding the right thing, the right solution to build. Whereas the team that takes a week to actually code it has no time to do the do the customer research. So you're well, you, you the more time you can spend, you know, doing the research and stuff and, and talk, kind of understanding the product and, and the problem. And the least amount of time you can spend building it is the way to go. I wanted to bring you to the question of how are you building a product-led company? You've worked at a couple. How are you building Dovetail's flywheel or, or product-led company? Yeah, well, there's a bunch of stuff. So not hiring sales is one of the things we've done for three years that's kept us kind of product-led. We invest heavily in the product. So we you know, build a lot of features that should be kind of self-explanatory and intuitive and, and self-service we do a free trial we have a lot of marketing content marketing one of the things that is really critical i think that a lot of startups underestimate is the power of the marketing website mm-hmm. so like if you don't have a sales team or a salesperson and you want to do product-led growth your marketing website is basically your sales person so you want to invest heavily in that we spend a lot of time making sure the website is, is fast, it's responsive for mobile, it's SEO friendly, and it has useful content. We show the product, like we started out, one of the lessons I have from the marketing website is we started out with just like these sort of abstract illustrations of the product. And I feel like that's never a good sign. When you go to a marketing website and they don't show you the product, they just show you kind of an abstract representation of it. Mm-hmm. You should instantly be thinking, you know, this is we like what's going on? What are they hiding? Yeah, exactly. But we did that to start with and it was a mistake. Like we kind of, because you, you sort of think like, 
I don't know what the rationale is. It must be something around like trying to abstract away the complexity and sort of sell the value rather than show the product. But I think for at least in our market where we're selling to PMs and designers and researchers who just want to show, they just want to see it. They just want to show, you know, show me the cheese. And so for us, we started with those abstract illustrations and then we replaced them with screenshots, like actual screenshots. And then recently, earlier in the year, we replaced them with videos so then you browse around the website and it's like the product is like there in your face and it's a video recording of somebody using it. And it is, there's no bullshit. It's like actually just a screen recording. So I think that that is important because then people can see it and their expectations are set and then they go sign up and it matches what their expectations are. Obviously having an easy trial, intuitive product with some onboarding and stuff, I think you don't want to do one of those tooltip kind of, you know, onboarding things. Like I think that's a crutch basically. And most onboarding, like people are pretty, they know how to use software nowadays. So you better need to be told to click here to go home when it's a house icon, click here to go search when it's a magnifying glass. Like people have these concepts now. They know what they're doing. So don't, sh- don't like tell them how to use the product I think show them the value and those tooltip tours, they basically just tell you how to use it. They don't show you the value. So think about things like sample data and uh, contextual help that talks to like why you'd want to use this feature, like what the purpose of the feature is rather than how to use it. And, and, and sort of like, you know, maybe some templates like getting started templates and stuff. So onboarding, I think the best onboarding is an intuitive product. You don't need onboarding if a product just makes sense. The whole point of onboarding is to try and make the product make sense and close that kind of gap uh, between expectations and your sort of mental model, I guess, and where the product is at. But if you can somehow just have that gap closed from the beginning by having a product that, that makes sense as conceptually matches what they have in their head and that the marketing website reinforces that all the way through the funnel, you don't need onboarding you can focus on other things like showing the value. I really want to drill down on that. How do you measure intuition? Yeah, measuring it is, I think, I mean, so we don't really do kind of like annual or quarterly goals at like metrics as such at the moment. We did have a stab at it, you know, like a year ago and we had quantitative metrics, which was like, you know, X many customers by this date or something kind of non-negotiable and easy to measure. And then we had what I call like vibe or like feeling, feeling metrics, which is like, we should feel like this or feel like that, you know? And so, you know, we should feel that customers kind of grok the product and, and the indicators of this is that people tweet about it. They, they tell us in Slack when they reach out on support, the questions they have make sense. They're not completely in a different world where they don't understand the concepts or the use case or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty hard to conclusively measure, but you should get the sort of indicator, I think, that your product is intuitive if people are, are you know, converting, if they're giving you good MPS, um, regardless of how you measure it, if they're tweeting about it, if they're emailing you and they contact you on support and stuff. If generally, the, the vibe is, is a positive one. You know you're on the right thing. Another thing which is just a... Sounds really basic, but uh, a lot of people kind of miss it. Is just use established patterns. Like, if if people are used to using Drive or 
or Confluence or, or Gmail or any of these tools like that they that they use every day. Don't go and reinvent the wheel with your user interface. Like just use the existing kind of system that they're used to, like the navigation, the IA, the um the the, the search and stuff. Like one of the things that Confluence really regrets uh, is calling their spaces spaces. Because no other product really calls their container a space. It's like usually a project. And so, yeah, just like think about like what are people used to already and then just use like it's the same reason why you use a magnifying glass for search because it has this meaning now and why we still use a floppy disk icon to mean save. Even though we don't use floppy disks, it has this meaning like it's a symbol that has a meaning that is well understood. And so what other things can you take from other products that are well understood and just do that and then it'll be intuitive because they'll they'll know it's like muscle memory no thank you so much for coming on wild art no worries thanks mason now it's time to hear from nick crocker i wanted to start off with how founders should think about bootstrapping versus going by the venture route under what circumstances does it make sense to bootstrap under what circumstances does it make sense to raise money from venture capitalists? As simply as I can explain it, venture capital is about growth. So if you want to grow a very large company very quickly, there's almost no way you can do that without venture capital. That isn't to say that you can't get wealthy. That isn't to say that you can't be happy. That isn't to say that you can't find balance and fulfillment building a bootstrap company. That isn't to make a judgment call about bootstrap companies versus companies that take venture capital. It's just to say that effectively, if you boil it all down, venture capital is just fuel for extremely high growth. And so I think about bootstrapping versus venture as a personal decision for a founder to make, weighing up all the aspects of that founder's life and all the things that they want to achieve in their life. And And if that vision involves a very high growth company, so a company that doubles every year for five to seven to 10 years and maybe grows faster than even that, then it's very rare that you can find a business model that will allow you to do that without some um, external capital, which allows you to hire people, invest in product sales, marketing, whatever it might be. So I think of it as a personal decision for the founders, but it's an inevitable decision in a way to take venture capital if you choose the high growth path. Sessions was the third company Blackbird invested in. And obviously at that point you were the, you had made the personal decision to go by the venture route. Personally for you, what variables were happening then that made you want to go via the growth route? You know, the honest answer is that I didn't think about it with that level of, with the level of clarity that I have now. Like if I'd had my time again, I think I would have spent a lot more time thinking about whether the model that I was built, the business model that I was um, building out was really a good fit for venture capital and whether I was the right person at that time to, to go on that journey, given what I knew. So I think, I think in retrospect, I built a company that wasn't right for venture capital. And the fact that I only raised a small amount of money and, and most investors rejected me is probably evidence of that. Not to say that it wasn't a success for Blackbird in the end, but 
I want to switch gears and focus in on Dovetail because a lot of their story was bootstrapping and then switching into raising money. They have a particular model where um, they can grow more efficiently and they bootstrapped for a few years. Can you just talk a little bit about why their model, their bottom-up model is so interesting for investors? Yeah, so the real magic of it is that as most businesses get to some amount of scale, their growth is proportional to the amount of dollars they pump into their sales team or their marketing team. And at a certain point, that just becomes inefficient. If you can build a company that grows in proportion to new users or um, users' passion for your product or users' usage of your product, that just changes the unit economics of your business entirely. And instead of pumping dollars into sales and marketing, you just pump more dollars into product improvements and that scales way further way longer and way more efficiently than sales and marketing dollars do so dovetail does have that that magical model right now where they think of everything as product and they're growing very quickly and very efficiently by building product features not by hiring salespeople and not by increasing the amount they spend every month on marketing mm-hmm. and it's incredible to watch actually, because that's not what it's like for 99.9% of the businesses in the world. And there is a certain amount of magic to it. And I think that's part of the reason that we're so excited um, about, about the journey that they're on. Are there any product growth hacks or is it simply just a beautiful product and a magic moment leads to word of mouth? Yeah. So the, the growth hack is that you give the sh- you give a shit about the product every day for three years and you hire the best engineers that you can <laughs> and you figure out how to make them work super happily and efficiently on, on building the right stuff. So if that's a hack, <laughs> then, then take it. But no, there, there is, there is no hack except consistency of excellent execution over a multiple year period in that case how do you get customers in the door what is it about the product in in dovetails case where they don't need to spend anything on sales and marketing yeah and i should clarify it's not that they don't spend anything it's that they spend a very small amount relative to the amount of revenue that they bring in each quarter so the most magical form of growth comes from word of mouth So one person loves what you do so much that they tell another person about it and that person becomes a customer as well. And it's hard to measure word of mouth accurately. So the proxy for word of mouth is net promoter score. So how happy are your customers? Because on the basis of this idea that happy customers will tell other happy customers who will tell other happy customers. So word of mouth and word of mouth comes from every single touch point that people have with the product from the shape of the buttons on the free trial page to the speed at which the credit card processes when you hit buy to the copy and tone of the customer support emails that get sent to you when you have a customer support request. So the end-to-end experience of the product is what drives word of mouth. And that requires a certain obsessiveness from founders to sweat every single detail of what they do to be able to drive that. Outside of word of mouth, I think the other thing that's really profound is uh, community. So building a community of people around the particular domain where you're an expert. And so for researchers that are using Dovetail, what I love about what Dovetail is doing is it's trying to be the default community where researchers come and learn from their peers and grow and find a home almost, find a place to, to be 
kind of cherished and lifted up and made to feel like heroes. And so I think community is something that is really, really profound in, in the early stages of the growth journey and something that I love Dovetail, the way Dovetail is going about it. And then I think finally content is a, is a interconnected piece of it, which is, you know, ultimately when someone wants to know anything about user research, what you want is that at some point they come back to a Dovetail blog post, a Dovetail webinar, a Dovetail podcast episode, uh, a Dovetail product feature that, that we are the world's repository for people looking for questions and answers to this in this particular domain. So word of mouth, happy customers, community and then content or inputs into creating that sort of magical movement like business. What do you love about Dovetail's product roadmap? I just love that it's overflowing. Every time I get on the phone with the founders, the list of things that they are working on, releasing, shipping, fixing, improving, ideas they have to make things even better, it just flows out of them. And the problem isn't what's next on the product roadmap. It's like, how are we gonna do all of these things with so few people? And so it's, it's always the first thing that we talk about. It's always on weekends, I'll get screenshots from Benjamin of new um, designs for things that he's working on. I'll get really great explanations from Brad about particular things they're doing on the engineering side. Like it's just this constant relentless drumbeat of shipping. And that's a cultural thing. Um, it's the core to who Dovetail is and particularly to who the, who the founders are. But it's also an execution thing, which is that they also have the capacity to do it. And they're obsessed with it. And I think they're both in the element when they're solving product problems. The product roadmap is just, there's just so many things that we could be and do. And I just love the, the enthusiasm and the energy that they both bring to it. Have you helped at all with their product roadmap? I don't think so. I think the only thing I said was last quarter, I commented, I said, I think you're trying to just ship too many things. You know, I have been a product manager before. And I think one of the big learnings is at least my approach is to slightly under promise that what you're going to ship. And if you have leftover capacity and to over deliver, but they ignored me and I'm kind of glad they did. They still got further. They shipped more than I would have expected they would have. So I, I, they're, they're better at product than me. Like, there's no point me really helping on that. That's they've got that. You know, I, I'm mostly just like um, sitting on the sidelines, just clapping. I'm, I'm not that useful to them. What else has impressed you about their team? I mean, their team is awesome. It's mostly engineers. I love the way that they have found people that they've worked with before. And so for a lot of the team who've, who've joined, there's been a very quick, they've come up to speed very quickly because they're just falling into those productive old working habits together. We hired a full-time illustrator way earlier than I think most companies um, of our size would have. And I just love the quality of the visual um, impact that she's had on the company. Uh, and I think that was a very conscious decision. It's a very small team that is hyper, hyper productive. And I think we've gone from three to 16 people in less than a year. Mm. But unlike most companies that you know quadruple or quintuple in a year, we didn't sort of slow down and bump into all of these um, headwinds as all the, as overhead increased, like every engineer proportionally added to the throughput of the team. And that's been pretty awesome to watch. And they're just a really smart group of people. Like, uh, you, you, 
you trust them, I think, to go up against any product team in the world right now. You know, ultimately, product teams aren't thousands of people. They're two, three, four, five people working on singular features. And I feel really proud of the team that, that Dovetail's assembled. The question we ask in our investment process is, are these founders in the weeds with their customers? Can you think of an example where either Benjamin or Brad has been in the weeds with their customers? I mean, they ran the company for almost two years. It was just two of them and then it was three of them and they did everything. And, you know, one of the things that's happening at Dovetail right now is that the level of large enterprise customers coming and signing up is just basically overwhelming the team's capacity to onboard them. It won't be that long. It won't be like that for long, but that's, it, there's, there's more demand than supply of hours in the day to fulfill enterprise customer requests. And Benjamin isn't sitting there going, well, you know, my strength is product and I'm going to leave this for someone else. He's in there filling out the questionnaires and, you know, going through all, jumping through all the hoops that are needed. And he's doing that alongside his team. And that's not beneath him. It's not, you know, something that he puts off. He's just getting in there and doing it. So, you know, that's on the sales side, on the customer side, just go into the Dovetail Slack community and you'll see um, the founders being a part of that from day one, talking to users. You know, at my fitness power, one thing I always loved was in the early days, Mike, who was the CEO and founder, was always in the forums, answering people's questions, giving people updates. You know, it's still all time. He's one of the biggest contributors to the My Fitness Power forums with like tens of thousands of contributions. And, you know, I see, I see the Dovetail founders in the same in the same vein. What's one thing you've learned about customer knowledge from Dovetail? So I think as the, the discipline of building product becomes more sort of ingrained and established. So obviously we understand the role of the product manager. Obviously we understand the role of the engineer. Increasingly understand the role and the value of the designer. But an underrated component of any product team is the user researcher who mm. brings the voice of a user to a level that's so much deeper than a product manager can, than an engineer can, than a designer can. And so where we used to think about product teams is product design and engineering, I think we'll increasingly think that's sort of outdated and actually it's product design, engineering, and user research. Blackbird, we're always trying to find product obsessed founders. How do you know Benjamin is product obsessed? I was thinking about good examples of this. So the first one is he sends me screenshots of stuff he's working on on the weekends all the time. <laughs> So in his free time <laughs> to relax, he builds product, designs product, but like actually at the pixel level, that I don't think you can teach or ask. It's like, that's innate. That's who he is. Mm. And actually I was thinking, I got a really good example of it in the last couple of days. So I sent him a text and I said, oh, we've got a meeting coming up. And I said to him, hey, we should debrief before that meeting. And he writes back, I think you mean brief before that meeting. <laughs> now, he was correcting me that in that I had incorrectly used the word debrief and you think, Oh, that's pedantic. But I actually love that because that is the obsession to with details. That is why dovetail is such a great product is that willingness to call out every tiny mistake, to realign every pixel, to sweat every word of copy so that it's correct. And he can't turn that, Benjamin can't turn that part of himself off, even when he and I are chatting on WhatsApp. <laughs> neither can you. <laughs> and, and neither can I, which is why maybe I admire it so much in him. 
Love that. Like attracts like. <laughs> and see, well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email. Wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you like the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you in a fortnight.